Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. A few weeks ago, a pair of podcasters at Vox ran a feature called How Beethoven's Fifth Symphony Put the Classism in Classical Music. In it, the podcasters claimed that, quote, wealthy white men had turned Beethoven into a symbol of their superiority and importance. For women, LGBT, and people of color, on the other hand, quote, Beethoven's symphony may be predominantly a reminder of classical music's history of exclusion and elitism. Here at Quillette, it attracted a great rebuttal from a symphony cellist and podcaster named Daniel Lelchuk, who wrote an impassioned defense of Beethoven, noting that the composer's appeal spans the entire world and every race of people. He also reminded us that Beethoven lived in interesting times, his career coincided with the rise of Napoleon, and Beethoven saw in the French leader a symbol of what we would now call democratic ideals. This week, I spoke to Lelchuk over the phone about Beethoven's wider world and the best way to understand the great composer's music within the grand arc of history. Daniel Lelchuk is a world-touring cellist with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra and the host of the Talking Beats podcast. Here are excerpts from our conversation. A lot of people, I think, their image of classical composers, they picture them at a desk with some kind of grand plume, a fountain of ink, maybe like a harpsichord in the background. This is the sort of image they have in mind of a creative laboratory that exists outside of time and history. But, of course, history goes on, even if you're composing symphonies. As you said, we like to think of music as this sort of otherworldly thing there with the plume and the harpsichord and I'm, I'm sure there were plumes and harpsichords <laughs> um, but yeah how connected is the music to what's going on the the big music at the time of beethoven was was opera so that was the most popular music and in opera you know rossini and and the big french opera composers you had a lot of themes of the day being drawn in we like to think of beethoven as being the ultimate expression of what we call pure music. But at the same time, we have to remember that obviously no one is completely divorced from their surroundings. So how much does he respond or not respond to the very volatile world in which he lived, both both inwardly, he had an extremely crazy and wild interior life, especially as he sort of went mad as he lost his hearing. He began to lose his hearing in his 20s already. Uh, and by his early 40s was completely deaf. He lived till 57. So imagine. And and then also the relationship with others, with the larger world. There was a lot happening at that early 19th century. How does a musician, including a classical musician, encode politics or at least political atmospherics in a form of music that doesn't have words? 
it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell when there's no page written by the composer saying this movement's about this. And Beethoven did that once with his Symphony Number no. Six, the Pastoral Symphony, where he gave each movement titles, and and it's a very bucolic setting. Uh, the country folk gather before the storm, and then there's a storm, and then the next movement giving of thanks. So you have bits and pieces like that, but. With a symphony like the Eroica, which had been originally dedicated to Napoleon, who who knows how much was actually inspired by Napoleon or, or by some great figure, and how much was just in the name, in the title. The musical history we're going to talk about, I think it starts, as I understand, in 1796. Napoleon was victorious in battle, fighting against Austria and its allies. Can you tell me a little bit, and maybe provide us with some music, about Beethoven responding to Napoleon's emergence as a military leader? 1796, we have the first two cello sonatas of Beethoven, and they're really sonatas for cello and piano. And it was one of the first times that Beethoven took this sort of obscure, you know, sort of lowly instrument, the cello. It wasn't the piano or the violin. Those are the, the two instruments the general public, both then and now, always think of the big solo instruments. But he took the cello and he writes these fantastically original sonatas. And this is early Beethoven. This is his fifth numbered opus. He went through the middle hundreds. So so this is early Beethoven, but it's a breakout sound right off the bat that's being published in 1796, right when, as you mentioned, Napoleon is having these first victories. And there's a little anecdote, by the way, later on, I'll mention about Napoleon and a famous Stradivari cello, which I, you're not going to believe. But these sonatas put Beethoven on the map as someone doing in music what no one had done before. Could you play us a little bit? I'd be happy to. Here's an excerpt from first cello sonata of Beethoven, Opus 5. <laughs> How much do we know in detail about his political attitudes and how much his own state of mind was shaped by what was essentially at the time a world war going on in Western Europe? One of the things about Beethoven that that's very frustrating for musicians and people who study him is that unlike a lot of composers and historical figures, there's relatively little, or more than relatively little, there's very little about Beethoven, not many letters, very sparse correspondence. But what we do know we know about his democratic ideals and ideas. And, and we can see that if we go a little later, a few years later to 1805, when we have the Eroica Symphony, this is a third symphony. And I can talk about how musically it was groundbreaking. The piece was originally dedicated to Napoleon. He was a figure in Beethoven's life that Beethoven looked to, to be that anti-monarchical figure a breath of fresh air who may lead things in another direction. There was a certain style attributed to Beethoven, the so-called heroic style. Wagner fell into ill repute because the heroic style of his music was seized upon by dictatorial elements. Has there ever been that kind of accusation against Beethoven? I'm paraphrasing here, but the great composer Robert Schumann said that Germans had no school of painting and, and Beethoven made the Germans on the map culturally as much as anybody. And then, and then of course, we can talk about later on as well, if you want, the, the ways in which the Ninth Symphony, that great ode to brotherhood, to freedom, to peace, 
to friendship that it was so corrupted and, and co-opted. It was played at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The Nazis loved to play the Ode to Joy theme. It was used by Rhodesian separatists. It has a very odd cultural string that leads it all around the world. And absolutely, it was loved by Wagner. Wagner viewed it as the ultimate German work of art. I, I would say it's the ultimate human work of art. As I understand, Beethoven didn't become a real star, so to speak, until it was about 1800. Is that right? Around the turn of the century, we start to see that Beethoven was the musical star. At this time, people were really into Rossini operas. They were being played all over Europe. Rossini was talking about Italy versus Germany. Rossini was making a killing. He probably would have been a, near a billionaire in, in today's money by the time he retired in his late 30s. So the popular form of music then was, was going to the operas, going to Rossini operas. Beethoven was toiling away. He was financially very unstable. He moved something like 50 times in his adult life, moved flats. It is, it is a picture of, of a deeply troubled, a struggling man. Yet, to go back to your question, among the people who, who knew music, he was beginning to be revered as the musician of the world. Mozart has just died. We still have Schubert alive. We have Haydn alive. We have other big composers. But Beethoven is taking up that mantle. Every symphony, every quartet, every sonata he writes pushes the limits, making new sounds that no one had ever heard. Beethoven, was he friends with Haydn? Yes, Beethoven was born in 1770, Haydn in 1732. There was a respect. There was a deep respect. And remember, Mozart had wanted to go study with Beethoven. It was impossible because of Beethoven's difficulty. They could not work it out. So Mozart went to study with Haydn instead. The years pass and Napoleon wins more and more victories. And then eventually he's back in France and he declares himself emperor, which is a slap in the face to the idea of, of what we would now call a democratic movement. How did Beethoven respond to that? Well, he had written this great symphony, the great third symphony. He had written the Eroica symphony. It was a piece that changed the whole idea of a symphony. And the dedication, uh, as we mentioned, was, was originally to Napoleon. And at one point, Beethoven was informed by his secretary what Napoleon had done, that suddenly this anti-monarchical, democratic, hopefully leader had declared himself emperor. And uh, there's a wonderful quote. So his secretary, Beethoven's secretary, is writing, I was the first to tell him the news that Bonaparte had declared himself emperor. Whereupon Beethoven broke into a rage and exclaimed, quote, so he is no more than a common mortal. Now, too, he will tread underfoot all the rights of man, indulge only his ambition. Now he will think himself superior to all men and become a tyrant. I, I love the idea that people actually talked like that spontaneously. <laughs> and, and, and then... The cherry on top is that, this is still quoting from the secretary, uh, Ferdinand Ries, Beethoven went to the table, seized the top of the title page where the dedication to Napoleon lay, tore it in half and threw it on the floor. The page had to be recopied. And it was only now that the symphony received the title Eroica instead of Bonaparte. Wow. 
Do we know what eroica means? It's heroic. It's the Italian for heroic. And it's, you mentioned before that heroic spirit, you hear it and you feel it as you make your way through the whole symphony. And it's hard to get people in 2020 with all that's going on to say, okay, you're going to sit down and listen to a 45 minute symphony. You're not going to be checking your smartphone every 20 seconds. Sit down and listen. But if you do, and you make it all the way through, you'll feel that heroic spirit prevailing at the end, even though there's unimaginable depths of darkness in the middle. Here's the opening and then a few other themes from the Eroica Symphony Number no. 3. hard is it for you to capture the spirit of a symphony with one instrument? I would say at once it's impossible, but it's also very easy because you can distill it down to the elemental aspects. You can highlight, okay, here's the main theme that we're talking about. You can talk about the simplicity of the line. When there's a whole symphony obviously you get the effect of what the composer really wanted. You have a hundred people, they're playing different parts. It's all working in tandem. But it's like when, when you read a quote from a play, you're, you're not in context. There's no actors, there's no costumes, there's no stage lighting, there's no drama. But somehow when you just read the quote, there's still that power deep in it. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette, and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuel Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and, of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. Let's talk about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. I didn't know this, but some have linked it in some way to Napoleon's invasion of Portugal? That's what a lot of people have said also to the Tuscan invasions of that same year of 1807-1808. And the beginning is the beginning that, that no one can forget. Everybody knows. 
you wrote in an email to me that those notes are Morse code for victory. Did you make that quote up? Because that's such a great line. You know who informed me of that? Madeleine Albright. Wow. <laughs> it's interesting. This is how Beethoven permeates. It wasn't a music interview at all. I, I, I think I'm the only one <laughs> kooky enough to ask someone a statement about their favorite music. But But she brought up Beethoven in response to universality there were questions of connections and she said look at beethoven morse code for victory the opening of the fifth symphony was the fifth symphony composed in a way that you think connotes an atmosphere of war as with many beethoven pieces you have great trauma great drama that's with the t and the d great action and heroism making their way through to optimism at the end we can hear in the first movement that there's almost a, a frenetic quality. It's like it, it never stops. It's, it's such a tightly coiled spring, the first movement, and so aggressive. You can't help but think that there's something connected to what he was seeing in the world around him. And then suddenly, when we get to the last movement, the heavens open up and you have these big brash trumpets. And it's about the happiest sounding music you can ever hear. It is militaristic in a way. The years march on, and we get to the downfall of Napoleon. And then comes the Congress of Vienna, and the map of Europe gets rewritten. That is when Beethoven composed something you highlighted to me in our correspondence, one of his notable cello sonatas, number 105. Yes, 1815, we have Beethoven, among other things, writing his final two cello and piano sonatas. So this is uh, Opus 105, number one and two. So remember that when we first started off, 1796, the first cello sonatas, that was Opus 5. We're now at Opus 102, 100 published works later. And Beethoven is deaf. He is writing silently. He is hearing everything in his head. And these two cello sonatas are an encapsulation of what Beethoven is able to do with the intimacy, only two instruments. But you have incredibly depthful and substantial pieces uh, for the very small ensemble, for really the smallest of any ensemble, which is a duo, a cello and a piano. We don't have the piano with us, but could you play some of that? Here's the opening to the fourth Beethoven cello sonata. And you know, what I really love about it is, first of all, the opening is completely cello alone. There's no piano involved in the opening. Oh, why would he do that? What, where does it come from to have this spare, never been done before, cello completely alone? Eventually, we get to the Ninth Symphony in the early 1820s. What is the link between Beethoven and Schiller? Beethoven wants to write a symphony. He struggles through 
the other movements. He's in Baden-Baden doing a cure, and he says, I've got it. And what he meant by I've got it, he has the idea for the finale, which for the first time in musical history has a chorus, has four soloists. It's never been done before. Think of it, a symphony with singers. What the hell is that? But he, he has to do it. And where does the text come from? It's directly taken from Schiller's Ode to Joy. It's an ode to brotherhood. It's an ode to democracy. If you read the text of Schiller's poem and you hear it in context, it, it, it couldn't be any other way. And what I'm going to play here is the theme as it first appears in the last movement. This is the theme that I would say is probably the most famous musical theme ever written. Your children can sing it even if they don't know they can. <laughs> your, your friend in Tunisia can sing it even if he doesn't know he can. And you'll hear as I play it on the cello, this is actually similar to what it sounds like when you hear it in concert. It's quiet, it's understated, and it develops into the most explosive, passionate, joyful celebration ever penned. playing this music as part of a symphony, how much of your brain is in the technical part of it, moving the fingers, keeping the melody, watching the conductor, and how much of your brain is in the, the mythic landscape that is summoned up by this music? Is that a distraction when you're playing? It depends how well you know the piece. I'll put it this way. If you know the piece like the back of your hand, then you're able to think about things that put it in context. When you're playing, goal number one is to do the best job you can. But let's say you read a quote or a passage before the concert by the composer. It could highlight a certain part of the piece that you feel needs extra significance. You, you want your mind to be everywhere and in the same place all at once. You need to hear the music in the cosmos. You need to hear how it fits into the universe, especially with Beethoven. There's no other way to explain it. This conversation we're having grew out of just a casual tangent that emerged from when I was on your podcast. Are you a scholar of Beethoven? I'm not a Beethoven scholar. I'm a Beethoven lover. You know, there's been so much written about Beethoven. I'm not trained as a musicologist. I'm trained as a cellist. But 
you know, we're at the point in the field of musicology that what's being written really has very little to do with music. A lot of musicologists, I would bet, don't even like to listen to the works of the composers they pretend to write about. So I think it's actually left up to performers right now in 2020 to actually communicate what I'm trying to do, both by playing and by talking about the music in terms anybody can understand, not just an expert. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high-protein, low-carb solution for people who love their cereal but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, Go to magicspoon.com slash Quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code Quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code Quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now, back to our podcast. Most people listening to this, if they're over the age of, say, 40, probably have seen the movie Amadeus, which, of course, dramatizes the life of Mozart. Beethoven's name is certainly as well-known as Mozart's, but I'm not aware of his life being dramatized in the same way. I think what you're alluding to is correct in a way. I, I think he's I think he's gotten a raw deal in the sense that everybody thinks of him as some deaf, sick, grumpy grouch. Like a grouchy martyr of his own genius. Exactly. But there's a whole other side to Beethoven. There's a humanistic side. For example, he was written a letter one time when he was in his 40s, completely deaf by a young girl who admired his genius a young piano student, and he wrote back one of the most moving, warm letters. So you can see there's a human side. Did he ever meet Napoleon? I'm just thinking about the hit Hollywood movie that you and I are going to write, Napoleon and Beethoven. Oh, that's a great idea, Jonathan. Now you're talking. I don't know if you've seen the play P.F. Dietrich about Edith P.F. and Marlene Dietrich, who, of course, actually, in, in real life, actually did know each other all too well. I'm thinking about some kind of nerdy musical docudrama if you're a Netflix executive and you're listening to this, <laughs> did Napoleon ever express much interest in musicians or what they did? There was a very famous French cellist, Dupour, 
D-U-P-O-R-T. And he played on a Stradivari cello built in 1711. As everybody knows, Stradivari is sort of like Beethoven is, is the name. And so this cello was called the Dupour Strad. And he was a court musician in France, Dupour was. And the story goes that in 1812, Napoleon said, give me the cello, I want to try it. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and, and he took the cello, and he wasn't a cellist, but his spikes on the boots made some gashes on the side of the cello. It is still visible today. If, if you look up pictures of Dupour, D-U-P-O-R-T, the Dupour Strad, you can see these strange gashes on each side. And that's said to have happened in 1812 when Napoleon literally took the cello from Dupour, the master cellist at the court, and tried it himself. Well, if you're going to wreck your expensive instrument, I think that's the guy you want to do it, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for helping to educate us about Beethoven and the historical period. Our guest has been Daniel Lelchuk. To hear more, please visit his podcast page at Talking Beats. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.